0: So I was given a topic for this morning, it's called disordered worship, and they pick me because I'm the most ordered, consistent guy, probably in the entire church, who can sniff out disorder a mile away, right? Actually, my qualifications for preaching this message is because I'm a disordered person, and therefore my worship itself would be disordered as well. I've never done anything out of totally pure motives, including preaching this sermon. I'm a flawed and broken person, and before you accuse me of being a little too falsely modest, I want to say something to you. You are also as broken as I am. We are just a group of broken people who are being restored into the image of Christ, but that takes a very long time. Let me show you how we all started. Okay. This is, here's where we started in Romans one. Okay. I think we have some, some passages up there in Romans chapter one, I believe here. This is, this is who we are by nature. Okay. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their ungodliness, unrighteousness suppress the truth For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is idolatry and this is what all of us are by nature." (laughs) This is who you are by birth. This is who your children are by birth. Now you say, well, now we're Christians. It's it's all changed. Uh, We're all better, right? Yes, uh, it's getting better. But we're not there yet. Let me read to you just a section of the Westminster Confession on sanctification. Uh, It says, this sanctification, that is us becoming Christ-like, Is throughout, throughout our lives, in the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. There abides still some remaining remnants of corruption in every part, which brings a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. If you want a passage, look at Galatians 5, I think 16 and 17. You get some idea of this kind of conflict. Okay, we are being transformed but we're far from perfect. We are still disordered people offering elements of disordered worship. Now you say, well then, you know, what hope do we have? Well, it's the same hope that saved the apostle Paul on the road to Damascus in the midst of his murderous rampage. It's the same hope that forgave uh, Peter when he denied Jesus three times. It's the same hope that saved John Newton uh, from his debauched slave trading. Okay? It's the same grace that will accept us and our fallible worship because this is the kind of God that we serve. And that's, that's our hope here this morning, for sure. As J.I. Packer said, you know, we're not saved because of our theology. We're saved often in spite of it in spite of our brokenness, in spite of our foolishness, in spite of our lack of complete understanding. What Romans 1 teaches us is this, the less we know about God, the less we know about ourselves. And therefore, we're open to redefining life and morality and you know, uh, choices any way we want. And that's put us in the place we are right now in our culture, for sure. Now, when Christians think of disordered worship, They tend to think of the things uh, that are warped or wrong or imperfect. They they, they tend to think of the things they don't like in worship, okay? Here's some examples, you know, ear-splitting contemporary music, that's disordered. And some of you are out there going, that's right. (laughs) Dry, dusty hymns are disordered. Can I have some head nods on that one, yeah? Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right, right? Skinny jeans, tattoos, and ear piercings on a pastor. (laughs) That's disordered, man. Clerical collars and festoon prelates saying, Oh, God, that's disordered. Coffee in the sanctuary, that's disordered. Autopilot liturgies, that's disorder. See, we tend to judge things by their appearances. Andrew Purvis from Pittsburgh Theological Seminary said, we tend to argue over minor things. These are all minor things. You see, disordered worship is much more serious than debating smoke machines or pipe organs. Disordered worship is about your heart and your mind as you enter into this place. In other words, it's, it's, it's not what we prefer that makes it disordered. It's who we are that makes our worship disordered. And I want to read a passage of scripture to you that I think gets us in the ballpark on this one. It's from Mark chapter 10. I'm going to ask you to stand again if you will. Mark chapter 10, this is a story found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's pretty important, and I think it sets the stage for us understanding our own disorder in, in worship. Mark 10, beginning in verse 17, as he was setting out, that's Jesus, on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Father, I would ask you to to open our eyes to the truth of this passage so that we would see in this passage our own disordered worship, if indeed it's there. Guide us, guide our hearts, we're here to have you teach us, we're here to have a you speak to us and to change us. So do this by your great power. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, I would have to say to you, this is, this is one of the most earnest men Jesus had ever encountered. Earnest, somewhat sincere. Now, you say, well, why? Well, look at some of the elements of this. This man ran up. There's a sense of urgency. He wanted to get in the front of the line. He ran up to Jesus. He knelt before him, which is a sign of respect. He used words of respect. He said, good teacher. To him, that was, uh, that's like saying, you know, a faithful rabbi. And then he asked the most important question any person could ever ask in the whole universe. How do I receive or what must I do to get eternal life? You can't ask a more important question than that in all the world. Now, my assumption about you folks today is that you're here because you you have some interest in your own spiritual life. Unless you're here on some kind of a quid pro quo basis, kind of like, honey, if you come to me, you come with me uh, to church for six months, you can buy your stupid boat, you know? Something like that, or maybe you're chasing a girl, or your parents bribed you to come here, you know, and gave you money, you know, to come here. Unless unless that is what's going on, I, I think you're here because you know there's something about all of this that matters. You have some earnestness in this process. But the question is, will it follow through in some genuine way to bring you to a good good place? This is the question. And so what I want to do is point out three evidences in this man's life that indicated that he had a disordered worship approach. Here's the first one. You're engaged in disordered worship when you have a warped or misguided view of yourself. What do I mean by that? Well, Jesus told this man what he needed to do if he was going to inherit eternal life. He quotes the second table of the law. That's the, the second part of the 10 commandments, you know, all the responsibilities that he has toward mankind. Right? This is the second table of the law. And what was his answer? What was the man's answer? All these I've kept from my youth. Is that right? Let me tell you what Romans 320 says, and I can quote it without looking at it, because I went to seminary. <laughs> I just got I just got humbled on that one right there. <laughs> and we know that no one is justified by the works of the law. For by the works of the law... Um, it's on the screen. Thanks, Darwin. That's why, that's why you're in ministry, Darwin, because you know, the, you know the screens. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. What the law does is not justify you, it condemns you. And this man should have said, as Jesus asked him those questions, I don't know how to do that. How do I keep these? He says, oh, I... I've kept all these from my youth. If you enter the sanctuary this morning thinking you're, you're basically a good person, you know, you're, you're decent, trying to get better, you see yourself as morally sincere, you're trying hard, you just need a little bit of boost over the hump, you know, over the speed bump, you just need to say, oh, I'll come to church and I want God, I want, I'm going to show God how much I care. I mean, I could have slept in this morning. He knows I'd rather do that. I, I'm, I'm here this morning, and I want to show him that I'm really a good person. I just need a little more reinforcement. I just need to know that uh, he's going to love me because I've made this effort. Does anybody here have that view? Do you have this kind of warped view of who you are? You're basically good, trying to get just a little bit better. Yeah. This is his problem. All this indicates your heart and soul are disordered and deceived. You're trying to keep your moral ledger in the black by being here. If you miss a few weeks, you start feeling bad, you go back and go, okay, now I'm back on track. God and I are good! And let me tell you, there are people here like that. You say, well, really? I'll tell you why. Because all of, our, all of our hearts default toward works righteousness. Your heart defaults toward proving that God loves you by your works. It's our default switch. Now why did Jesus tell him to keep this commandment, to, to expose the shallowness of his own heart? to let him to see his own hopeless condition? See, the, the only biblical approach to coming in here is when you say, "I am a desperately needy person, asking God to continue to pour His grace out upon me because I have no other hope." Do you have that view? Are you coming in here understanding that that's the only hope you have is through Jesus? In his grace, in his mercy, in his sacrifice, in his merits, you know? We enter as supplicants, recognizing that we have no claim on God whatsoever. I was looking this morning at one of those old, dusty, powerful hymns. Rock of ages, cleft for me, Augustus Toplady. You'll have to tell me, Dad, how to say his last name because it always looks like Top Lady to me. Let me, t- let me tell you the lines in this. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. You coming in here like that? If you don't come in like that, you're coming in disordered. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. That's, that's the, those are the lines of the hymn. And that's the only basis upon which your worship is ordered. Now, you also see this when he says, what must I do? This is Typical. If, if, if the answer to salvation is in the first person pronoun, I, you're already lost. If you ask that question, that, that E question, right? Jimmy, you're studying that stuff. If you were to die tonight and stand before God and you said to you, Why should I should let you into heaven, what would you say? Well, I, 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 I. You know, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, and I'm trying. I don't know. If the first person personal pronoun is your first answer, You don't know Christianity. It's the third person personal pronoun, he. He, he, his merits, his grace, his mercy, his sacrifice. He paid it all. And this man, this man had no concept of that. Now here is the second way we know our worship is disordered: is that we. We mangle and distort and diminish the character of God. Not only do we misunderstand ourselves, we misunderstand God. (laughs) Okay? Now, he comes up, this is a little bit harder to understand, he comes up to Jesus and says, good teacher. And look what Jesus says. He says, you know, why do you call me good? Now, here's what skeptics and cynics do. They go, ah, see? Jesus Never claimed to be good. He was as fallible as any of the rest of us, right? Just a man. He can't be deity. He said, why do you call me good? I'm not good. Is that what Jesus is saying here? This has nothing to do with Jesus' own nature. He was speaking to a man who looked at him as a rabbi and is addressing this man's flawed view of goodness that could be somehow defined by human achievement. I'm a good man, and I'm asking another good man, you, Rabbi, what do I have? Is there one more thing I need to do to make sure I have eternal life? Because we're both good. Jesus answered, It's meant to force him to recognize that his only hope is in the goodness and greatness of God. This man had a flawed view of goodness. In other words, he compressed goodness down to this human level. He compressed, you know, wisdom or righteousness or holiness down to this human level. And Jesus said, "You, You have no idea what goodness even is. You're. Misrepresenting goodness because you misrepresent the nature of God. Whenever we enter the sanctuary with a distorted view of the character of God, we've disordered worship. Now, let me tell you two ways we mangle it. First of all, we mangle His holiness. These are these are the, and there's all sorts of aspects of the character of God that are important, but there are two that are really Kind of get messed up. We mangle his holiness. You understand when you present yourself here, you're entering the presence of absolute majesty. You're entering the presence of a consuming fire, of a God of infinite moral purity. See, we, let's, hey listen, we want God to be chummy. We just want to chum. Hey, God, you, know, it's you and me. And the first thing we have to notice about him is this trisagion, this holy, holy, holy dimension of the character of God. I mean, this is R. C. sprawling, you know, holy, 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 you know. But it's so true, it's never changed. God is infinitely morally pure. And this is the God that you enter into worship. Now I have to tell you that we're we're also casual, you know, mm-hmm. this is disordered, you know, disordered worship here. And, you tuck it in, that's disordered. You know, we focus on all, we're so casual. But we have to get a, a grasp on the fact that he he could just take us and annihilate us in a moment. And I, I've been convicted about something, and I'm just going to tell you, You know, you know, I like to talk to people, and I come around before the service, and I banter with people, and... And I I really love seeing you guys here, and I care about your lives. And You know what I do sometimes in the middle of a worship service? I'll go up and say, hey, how you doing, man? You know, In the middle of a worship service. (laughs) I did that uh, with Jason Burnick at communion the other day. He used to have in communion. I go, hey, man, how's it going? Why would I do that? Why, Why would I take your holy moment with God and think that some idiot like me can come up and make your life better by saying hi to you. Now, gonna take a long time to work me out of this because I've been doing this for 50 years. See, I, got, I got a lot of bad habits to overcome, but, but you, this is your holy moment in the presence of God. And God doesn't need me, need me to come up and, make, and make, you, make your day that I said something to you. You have enough if you have him. So I'm sorry if I've done that to you. I've probably done that to most all of you in here. I don't have any business talking to you or just even saying hi in the middle of a worship service. We not only mangle His holiness, we mangle His grace. This is Jesus gentle and lowly. You see this consuming fire has come down in bodily form to say I know you, I understand you, and I love you. As Keller has said, I have to quote him at least once. You, know, here, you are more flawed than you ever imagined and more loved than you ever dared dream. This is the This is the fulcrum point between His holiness and His grace. This this relentless, redeeming, reconciling grace that's lavishly poured out upon you to divert the wrath of God away from you. I don't know if you realize that a week or so ago we had a little tropical storm that kind of came through, kind of skirted us. Did you you ever, were were some of you awake at night and heard the rain, the pounding rain? About a week ago in that storm it was like Relentless. I felt sort of uneasy. About 2.30 in the morning, I got up. I felt like I had to go out to my garage for some reason. <laughs> I went out there and, you know, and I had my garage door down and water was pouring in under the garage door. It's never happened before. We, I've, we've lived there 18 years. Water's just pouring in because it was stacked up. I have this uh, problem outside there if I'm not careful. So I, I went out in the middle of the night in the rain. In flip-flops, I had to walk through my backyard because I couldn't open my garage door. With water this deep in my backyard, and I had to scrape out a place for the water to drain off. I have this little thing that gets pine straw built up. There's like a dam. I had a, I had a, in the middle of the night scrape this thing out, and Debbie was totally oblivious. She was asleep the whole time. You know, I'm just out there doing this. I'm getting totally drenched because I needed to protect my garage. The water coming in my garage is like the holiness of God, relentlessly coming in, You, all the defenses and barriers you have against that, coming in anyway, taking over my space. And Jesus is like the guy out there digging the trench, diverting the water away so that it could drain out. That's what he did for you. He diverted the wrath of God away from you because he loves you that much. If we don't understand holiness and grace, we can't even worship. Everything we do will be disordered. Now, Paul David Tripp speaks about how we mangle the character of Jesus. I'll just give you some quick illustrations of this. he says, we, we, you come in here and want Jesus to be the kind of Jesus you want. And so he has, uh, in his uh, new, uh, dev- dev- morning devotional book, he has about a weeks of the, the of these kind of descriptions of Jesus. The first one he calls Prozac Jesus. <laughs> you just want somebody to come and dull your senses. Oh, make it feel better, Jesus. Just make it feel better. Now, let me tell you, Jesus promises to give you peace, but he gives you peace on his terms in the context of surrender. He just doesn't give you peace on your terms. He's not Prozac Jesus. Neither is he vacation planner Jesus. Take me to to an exotic place. Take me to paradise. I want my life to be easy. I just want to sit at the beach I don't want trouble. Tripp says, if you judge God's goodness by the amount of suffering in your life, you'll end up concluding he is not good. Throw a hardship, difficulty into that, right? He says, here's what you and I need to understand and live in light of. These difficult moments of life are not the failure of God's plan or in the way of God's plan. These moments are part of God's plan. Whatever it is you're going through, and this is a hard thing because some of you are going through things that are not easy. I can never come to you as a pastor and say, oh, well, I guess God made a mistake. Sorry. That just throws us into utter chaos. He's not the vacation planner taking you to paradise. You're gonna go through hard times and you're going to see the victory in and through those hard times. He also says, Suggestion Box Jesus. We want to take the words of Jesus as advice, not commands. I'll believe in Jesus until I run up against something that I don't like, and then I'll do what I want. Maybe I'll have an affair. Maybe I'll spend money the way I want. Maybe I'll marry this person when I know it's probably not the best thing. And Tripp says, as your creator, he knows you, he knows the world you live in, he knows the plans he has for you because he knows all these things. He's infinitely more qualified to set the boundaries of your living than you are. One of the dark delusions of sin is that it causes us to buy into the insane thought that we might be smarter than God. and That's never been the case. If you have his word, you say... This is the final and ultimate authority for my life. He also talks about uh, match.com Jesus. <laughs> Lord, give me a relationship. Put me in a relationship. I need people. I need this. I need uh, okay. and, and listen, we all, we all want to be loved. But you want to be loved so much, you're willing to pray that Jesus would sacrifice himself to put himself outside your relationship so you could have another Messiah in your life. Somebody that you think will always be there for you. And so he goes on and on like this. We warp our worship when we want Jesus to be what we want him to be. Now, one final point. Our worship is disordered, and this is kind of the key to the whole text, right? When we love and trust something or someone other than Jesus... Look at the passage. Jesus looking at him loved him. Now, understand this. This is a a funny cultural thing. People say, if you say something to me I don't like, if you tell me I'm wrong, you hate me. Oh my goodness. If you give me something hard to hear, you must hate me. That's not that's not true. Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, one thing you lack. I want you to sell everything, everything, and follow me. Do you think that was an easy thing to hear? Now, his admonition to give up everything and follow him was unique to this man. But the universal principle is this, nothing, no one, anywhere, anytime can be more important to you than Jesus, including everything you own and everyone you love and everything you've ever dreamed of doing. None of that is more important than Jesus. When something else is more important than him and you bring that in with you to the sanctuary and say, God, don't touch this, leave this alone. you may not even be conscious of that, The question is, has God ever called you out on what you love? Has he he ever put it in your face and said, all right, I want to see how much you love me. I want to know if you're going to follow me instead of just giving me lip service, really when your true savior is someone else, somewhere else. Now, it's easy to pick on the money part. All of us are concerned about money. This man just didn't give up money. He gave up comfort, status, security, and prestige. He gave up everything. He was told to give up the whole shebang. He was a rich, young ruler from the aristocratic class. He had clout. And Jesus said, I want all that to go away. What a profound demand. This is crazy if it's not true. Who could ever ask anybody to do this if he's not the son of God? In whom or what are you placing your ultimate happiness? We know we say this here a lot. We've said this over the years, but we have to keep going back to it time and time again. In whom or what is your ultimate happiness? Your ultimate security? What is strong enough to bear the weight of your own soul? If you you try to make a person bear the weight of your own soul, I will tell you this, you will crush them because they cannot be your messiah. In whom or what are you placing your ultimate source of comfort? We had a funeral yesterday for a fine man named David Conrad. David was 55, he died of COVID. I was texting with him the last week of his life. And I naively thought that he could talk to me on the phone. (laughs) All he could do is text because every breath was a battle. I texted him the next day and he says, I'm a little more stable, breathing is a little easier. And two days later, he entered into eternity. And so now there is a mother and two teenage daughters that don't have him in their lives. If David was the savior, he's gone. And some of you in here understand exactly what that's like because you've lost people in your life. My son Robert went to the funeral of a 22 year old young man who died of COVID. It was one of my son's uh, neighbors' brothers. And so, as, as Robert was coming home from this funeral near Columbus, Georgia, we're talking to him on the phone and he's kind of going. <coughs> 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 Robert, are you okay? <coughs> you know, so he's quite, never heard him do that. So, you know, when you get off the phone, then it starts working on you. Is he okay? You text him, you know, call, no answer. You know, text him, call, no answer. And then I said to Debbie a little later, I said, you know, what What would happen if he got COVID? Suppose he died. And we said this, we said, well, you know, we could probably bear that if we knew he was a believer. And the Lord came back to me and said, well, suppose I would not guarantee that for you. Will you still love me? Will you still trust me? Will you still follow me? Will you still believe in me? I want to close by reminding you we have people in our church that have had to experience this we, I don't think they're here this morning but I think of Tim and Emily Hunt in January of 2019 we did a funeral for their seven month old grandson who died of SIDS in his crib totally healthy baby last year 2020 we buried Timmy and Emily's son Marshall he's about 33 years old And then this year, their daughter had twins. One of them weighed one pound and something. They were in the NIC unit for months or weeks or whatever and could have easily died. That's a trifecta baby. That's three painful losses. Potentially the third one. Those babies are okay now. But they're still here because their family wasn't their savior source of security what about you only grace can sustain you in the middle of this jesus says i want no one or nothing to come between you and me if you want to follow me this is christianity it's really christianity one on one Now, some of you, or many of you are new, so I use this little illustration. With this, I close. Here's Jesus' test to you. Jesus gives you a test today, and he says this. I'll give you whatever you want in life. Whatever you want, I will give to you. Under one condition. You remember what it was? You'll never see my face again. I'll give you whatever you want under one condition, you'll never see my face again. Would you take him up on that? You say, "Yeah, I want money and I want this." And I want Yeah, yeah. I'd entertain that. If you if you entertain that, you're very very far from being a true disciple of Jesus. If that thought creates utter chaos in your soul, it it makes you shudder in the core of your being to think, I would not see his face again, then I think you're closer to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. If not, you are a follower of Jesus. Because seeing his face is all that really matters at the end of the day. And at the end of your life.